Hello and welcome to the Full Fat Podcast, where we tackle dishonesty, untruths and misrepresentations in politics and the media. I'm Alexis Conrad, and although the politicians have taken a week off, well, we're still here talking about the biggest stories of the week with independent and impartial fact checkers from the Full Fat team. Now, if you have social media or happen to be in central London on Saturday, you'd have found one event this week difficult to ignore, the Unite for Freedom March. Now, to talk about some of the claims around that protest, uh, here is Deputy Editor Pippa Alan Kinross and fact checker Abbas Panjwani. Welcome both. Hi. Hi. So look, on Saturday, a very large crowd descended on Parliament Square. They were protesting against lockdown restrictions, the potential implementation of what they call vaccine passports. Uh, Shortly after, an image of what appeared to be a screenshot from BBC News started doing the rounds after being picked up on uh, Twitter by a verified user, Patrick Henningsen. Uh, He describes himself as an independent global affairs analyst, and I quote, fierce critic of mainstream media propaganda. But what Mr. Henningsen failed to analyse was that this image was fake, Pippa. Tell us a little bit what the image said and a little bit around what Mr. Henningsen thought it said. So this was an image of Victoria Derbyshire on BBC News. And the way that it was set out, it looked as if the news report that she was talking about was that there were just 350 protesters in London on that day. We know that there were a lot more than that, obviously, and and people were getting very angry that this was an example of the BBC and the, the mainstream media trying to sort of belittle this protest. Actually, the screenshot had been edited. That caption wasn't real. We managed to sort of track it down and the original screenshot of Victoria Derbyshire on the news came from April last year when she was actually reporting on the birth of Boris Johnson's son. Um, And all that had happened really is that someone had just edited the caption. So, you know, you could do that with anything. You could make it, you know, look like any BBC reporter was saying anything just by changing a caption. And there were some sort of quite clear things on this. You know, the font that they used was slightly different. The kind of layout of the way the caption was done was different to how the BBC would normally do it. So there were a few clues that this wasn't real. Um, But Victoria Derbyshire also, you know, she shared our fact check on this and sort of said, like, I wasn't working that day. Um, That's not the right font. And I haven't worn that dress since last summer. So there's no way that this was real. There we go. Fact checkers now need to keep track of BBC presenters' wardrobes just to find out exactly when and where things were said. But it's interesting, isn't isn't it? Because do we know where the image originated from? Because knowing where it comes from perhaps can tell us a little bit more of why it was put together. Do we know anything about that? No, I think it's really hard to track down these images. There used to be a time when most fake images would perhaps start circulating on open social media platforms, Facebook being kind of semi-open, Twitter. Now, a lot of these groups, especially these, yeah, these groups, these are anti-lockdown groups, Telegram is their first port of call, private kind of messaging platform. And so a an image that is mocked up like this and put into a Telegram channel is completely close to us unless we happen to be in the same Telegram channels. And I personally am in some of these Telegram channels, but I didn't see this particular image just floating around. I worked on a piece a few weeks ago, which was fake quotes from football managers, which was kind of a lighter story around the European Super League and managed to track back one of the fake quotes to its originator. But that was because it was on Twitter um, and that's all open source. So I could get back all the way to the, to the kind of original image and contact the user. But in a lot of cases, we can't do that. 
it is interesting because someone somewhere created that, which was obviously, well, it's obviously fake now that you've looked in on it, but they are trying to rile people up. All these marches against the lockdown have had a common theme that, oh, the media is not going to report this. Of course, the media have been reporting it. I can see that because during those marches, I'm usually on the radio because it's on the weekend and I can see the big screens covering those marches on the big news channels. So someone somewhere is trying to wind people up even more by leaking these these fake uh, put-together screenshots. But Abbas, let's talk a little bit about the numbers. Clearly, there was more than 350 people there. But it is a problem, isn't it, trying to figure out how many people attend marches. And it has been a problem in the past. We've seen Trump inauguration, people's votes. Tell us a little bit about how we can get as accurate information as we can about the attendance for those marches. The standard way of sort of calculating a crowd size is something called the Jacobs method. Pretty simple sort of method meant by a guy called Herbert Jacobs. I was going to say, I hope he was called Jacob. Otherwise, it would have been a bit disappointing. Yes, it's very simple. It says you've got a crowd. It, it kind of looked at kind of static crowds rather than moving protests, which are even more complex. It says you've got a static crowd in a space. You know the area of the space. You can work that out. You know the area of the space that people within that space are actually occupying and you know roughly how densely they're occupying the space. It's it's not particularly complex. So, you know, if you had a, an area of 100 square metres, a sort of a pretty tight crowd would be three people per square metre. If that 100 square metre space is full of crowds that's at that density, we've got about 300 people in that in that space. So when you have really good aerial imagery of protests, you can try and get to a number that is probably quite imprecise but you know it's the best we have so when we had people's vote marches for example a few years ago um, anti-brexit people's vote marches we had the mainstream media covering them with their helicopters and you had really good aerial imagery of the entire march area the last one that march was in 24th of april and they claim that a million people attended that anti-lockdown march and uh, I think you looked at video footage of Victoria Embankment and Waterloo Bridge, and it was left running for 15 minutes and caught the whole march. And it was just was easier to calculate that it was nowhere near. And of course, the people attended just as it was in the people's vote. The people said there was more people than what the media were reporting. Of course, everyone who goes on that march you know, must feel like there's thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. But yeah. of course, you're only able to look at the, I don't know, 100 or so people that are immediately around you. Let's move uh, away from the crowd sizes and look at some of the stuff that was said and the claims from that protest. A lot of uh, T-shirts uh, bearing, uh, for example, the pandemic is a scam. Vaccines are somehow experimental. Let's get into some of those hundreds of stickers plastered all over uh, Route Master bus. They, I mean, there was all sorts of stickers, but they were predominantly masks don't work. What do we know about those claims that masks don't work? And what what, what is the evidence upon which that quite sizable amount of people are adamant that masks don't work? Interestingly, some sort of anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine people are wearing masks because there's this sort of strange 
theory, which is completely untrue, that people who are vaccinated themselves will be shedding harmful vaccine particles into the air. And so people need to wear masks to prevent them. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, it's quite a, quite a fun one. That is a double bluff there. Yes. I may, maybe wow. maybe some, um, you know, some some kind of pro-mask, pro-lockdown activist uh, sort of seeded this uh, conspiracy theory in, in the Telegram channels or whatever to get uh, to get them to do what they wanted. But anyway, that aside, what we, what do we know about masks? Well, we know that masks stop viral particles getting through to different levels of success. So there are lots of different types of masks. The best, which are like you know, big respirators, which are used uh, by kind of hospital staff in wards of COVID patients, stop the particles actually getting in. They're very fine mesh. Generally, people won't be wearing them. They'll be wearing like a surgical mask or a cloth mask. And there is data which shows that at least surgical masks do stop particles getting through. They're not foolproof, but they are really good at basically if you've got COVID or if you've got influenza or whatever it might be, and you cough or you exhale or whatever, fewer particles will go out into the air by virtue of you wearing a mask. And this is a big point a lot of people who say that masks don't work are focusing on do masks stop you inhaling these particles rather than do masks stop you exhaling and spreading them because there's more evidence that masks help basically protect other people from you if you wear one and you are infected than the other way around. Correct me if I'm wrong, both of you, but a lot of this comes from that Danish study that looked into masks and found in a control group, one wearing masks, one not wearing masks, that actually, uh, even though the mask wearing group did perform better, but it was around the 2% mark. So I think anti-lockdown uh, fans and anti-mask wearing fans have sort of grabbed that study and said, look, there's so little evidence that masks work. Why are we being forced to, to wear this mask? But of course, they forget that the Danish study never actually went into any sort of detail on how it protects others if you wear a mask in a room. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the paper itself says the study was not designed to show whether potentially infected individuals wearing face masks would reduce the overall transmission of the infection because it was only set up to show what benefit it might have to the wearer. Okay, um, thanks both. I know we're going to be coming back to quite a few of these fact checks in future episodes. Now, following the protest, there was a heated exchange between presenter Dermot O'Leary and guest Beverly Turner on ITV's This Morning. Clips of this argument have gone viral and contain a lot of questionable claims. So to tackle some of them, it's time for This Morning with Grace Rahman. Hi, Grace. Hello. Morning. Now, look, let's go through this. Uh, plenty of claims were made through a heated exchange. So Beverly Turner had this to say about the survival rate and the average age of death. 99.8% survival rate from COVID-19. The average age of death is 82. I'll start with the 99.8%. Uh, it's almost certainly lower than this. Uh, calculating survival rate is quite difficult because it depends a lot on the demographics of a population. Obviously, it'll affect uh, older populations more. Um, but we know from studies in Europe where the age profile of countries is similar to ours, that the survival rate is somewhere between 99% and 99.5, but not as high as she says at 99.8. OK, and what about the average age of death? Is it 82? Yeah, so this is roughly correct. But we also know that people who die of COVID on average lose around a decade of life. And of course, we don't know the long term effects 
long COVID, we don't know how suffering with COVID affects you later down the line. So that number doesn't negate the kind of negative effects that we don't know about yet. Let's move on to some of the other claims that sprung up in that heated debate. These concern the vaccines themselves. It doesn't stop you catching SARS-CoV-2. It doesn't stop you transmitting it. So, Grace, let's have a look at these claims one at a time. Beverly Turner says getting the COVID vaccine doesn't stop you from catching it. So we have quite significant evidence showing that that is not the case. So studies show that even after one dose um, of Pfizer, you have a kind of 70% reduced risk of being infected. And that's both with and without symptoms, which is really significant. And that rises to about 85% after the second dose. And this comes from data um, which was testing healthcare workers every two weeks, regardless of whether or not they had symptoms. So the idea that you may be vaccinated, but you can carry the virus is the next one. So what do we know about if you're vaccinated? Does it stop you transmitting the virus without becoming sick yourself, but transmitting it to yeah, others? So for those people who are unfortunate enough to get vaccinated and then become infected, which there is a small chance of, uh, we also have data showing that the getting vaccinated actually significantly decreases their chances of passing the disease on to their household contacts, which are obviously people you are quite close with and we would expect you to pass the disease on to. Um, so those people are between sort of 40 and 50% less likely to pass the virus on to people within their household. And that appears kind of two weeks after vaccination, regardless of age. Now, the last claim we're going to look at was addressed to Matthew Wright, who was also on the panel with Beverly Turner. It's a trial drug. We are still in clinical trials, Matthew. So, Grace, are we still in clinical trials with this vaccine? So this claim seems to stem from the fact that some of the vaccine trials have completion dates set in the future. Uh, But the important thing to note here is that we already have data on key safety and efficacy outcomes. And that information has been published in peer-reviewed journals. These vaccines have gone through the usual kind of human and animal studies that we would expect an approved vaccine to go through. But as you would hope, you know, data on long-term protection and safety will be continued to be collected over the coming years. Uh, And that's why the completion dates are set in the future. Grace, uh, thank you as always. Grace Rahman there, uh, one of our fact checkers. Now, finally, one piece of news this week might take some getting used to. Now, for months, we've discussed the Kent variant and the South African variant, but the World Health Organization has announced a new simplified naming system, which may help remove some of the stigma. Now, the Kent variant becomes the alpha variant. The South African variant becomes the beta variant. The Brazilian variant becomes the gamma variant. And the Indian variant becomes the delta variant. So soon you'll start seeing media outlets switching over to the new terminology. But that got me thinking, how do the full fact deal with this sort of thing? Now, to give us some insight, let's welcome back Deputy Editor Pippa Allen Kinross. Pippa, full fact until recently have been using the term Indian variant, like most other press outlets. But you would never use things like the Wuhan virus, for example, or the China virus. What's the difference here? I think this has been quite a difficult thing for a lot of newsrooms, really, 
because there is a concern that just sort of using phrases like India variant, South African variant, it could lead to stigma, it could lead to, you know, quite an unpleasant association that you don't really want to create. But the problem that we had was that the alternative option, the scientific names, were just really, really complicated. So for example, the really transmissive Indian variant that that has been sort of causing trouble over here, its scientific name is B.1.617.2. That's just easily rememberable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I mean, and it's one of two Indian variants, so you have to specify if you're saying dot two or dot one. And um oh, no. and it's just not recently you can put in a headline. And it's not really something that people have much understanding of what you're talking about if you use it. We've tried to use it where we can. We think it's you know, it is helpful to sort of use these scientific names and, and not just kind of go for the, the country specific names. But it, it has been tricky from the beginning, hasn't it? Because coronaviruses uh, existed beforehand. Uh, Coronavirus vaccines have already been in circulation, but of course they were for cows. I mean, in the beginning, full fact, we're we're referring to COVID-19 as the novel coronavirus uh, or the new coronavirus in headlines to avoid the confusion for the previous coronaviruses. At the start of the pandemic, we, we had a lot of things of people, you know, saying oh, you know, my, my bottle of Dettol says it's piped coronavirus, so this can't be a new thing. This is something that's existed for a long time. Well, there was that famous clip of, of uh, where someone said this is, uh, I think it was American TV, there was a, 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 a TV show host saying, well, it's COVID-19. I mean, there's, there's been another 18 <laughs> of those, so surely we, we know how to deal with it, you know. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of confusion, hasn't it? There was a lot of confusion. There definitely was because, you know, although coronaviruses have existed for a long time and there are lots of different ones, people don't really know about the, the terminology or they didn't. You know, you kind of talked about SARS and MERS, but you didn't really talk about coronaviruses. Um So it did cause a lot of confusion. But really, once they sort of introduced the name COVID-19, people really did pivot to that. And now, you know, you're much more likely to hear people talking about COVID-19 than talking about coronaviruses. Pippa, as always, thank you for giving us all this time. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends to help stop the spread of bad information. Full Fact is independent and impartial, and you can read more about the commitment to neutrality at fullfact.org forward slash about. We'll be back at the same time next Friday morning.